following sermon is provided by Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Priorities, priorities, priorities. You use that word often in your own conversations with friends or perhaps if you run a business, do you ask your subordinates, what are your priorities? Uh, this word was something of a buzzword in the last half of the 20th century. Uh, but originally, the word priority, which dates back, I think, to the 16th century, meant that which came first in time, in a temporal uh, sequence, in a historical f- record. But then, in the late 19th century, as you look at use of the word and how it changed over time, people began to use this term to describe that which is of topmost importance. Then, in the 20th century, everyone from teachers to advertisers to pollsters and employees and even pastoral search committees wanted to know, what are your priorities? But stop and just think about that for a second. Think about the nature of that question. Priorities, plural as if more than one thing can be first in a sequence, as if more than one race car driver can win a race, as if more than, than, than one thing can come first, more than one concern can occupy first order importance in our lives or in our activities. How can anyone, being finite as we are, being in time as we are, how can any of us have more than one priority, more than one uh, principal, primary, or, or pinnacle concern in our lives? How can any of us balance multiple priorities, multiple first things? You know, the plural form of this word, I contend, is really a late modern invention that is born out of and expresses our obsession with hyper-productivity, with multitasking, with being on top of everything all the time and everywhere. This is an internet word, even though it antedates the internet by a few decades. But let me revise the popular question, because I think at heart it is asking a good thing, and perhaps even the search committee asked Corey this. What is your priority? What is your priority as a pastor? There can only be one thing. But in real life, we should specify how this plays out, shouldn't we? What is your priority as a husband or as a wife, as a parent or as a child, as an employer or as an employee, as a deacon or as an elder, as a neighbor and as a friend, as a newly ordained minister of the gospel or as a veteran minister? What is your priority in that particular role you have? You see, we can have only one Priority, properly speaking, in reference to each role or relationship that we have. And insofar as we have many roles and relationships, I guess you can say that we have multiple priorities. Well, tonight, what does this have to do with our passage, you might ask? Tonight, Christ, by his authoritative and royal decree expressed here in Matthew chapter 10, what Matthew Henry calls an ordination sermon. He highlights the singular priority 
with which his disciples must concern themselves as his commissioned and ordained ambassadors in a new field of service. Indeed, as his apostles, as his ministers being sent out on what is initially a very temporary mission, but will have lasting implications for their office moving forward. And Christ's royal commissioning and authoritative direction given here in Matthew chapter 10, we are presented with the fullness of heavenly wisdom, which he's been dispensing throughout Matthew's gospel and which he will continue to give to his disciples as he develops them for leadership in the kingdom of heaven. But this wisdom from heaven is what the world regards as utter foolishness. And what sadly, and I don't know about the search committee here, I trust you all did not fall into this trap, but sadly, many search committees and churches fall into this trap too of declaring what Christ says to be a priority to be something a little less than first. The priority, the priority for Christ's minister is to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Everything else in his ministry flows into and out of that, like the hub at the center of a wheel. At the end of chapter 9, our Lord demonstrated his motivation for ministry. That is, compassion for sinners unto the glory of God. In verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. It was the love of God that motivated the Son into the world, we might say. And now we see Christ expanding his ministry of gospel preaching and teaching to the sin-sick people of Israel, to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel, as he says. And how does he make this expansion? Through his disciples, specifically the twelve, as he empowers them now as apostles and deploys them on their first tour of service. At the end of chapter 9, Christ instructed his hearers to plead with God to send gospel ministers into his harvest, a prayer which he answers this evening in Corey's ordination. But here at the beginning of chapter 10, right on the heels of giving this petition to his hearers, Christ begins to answer that prayer, even as the incarnate Son of God and God the Son. As we consider these opening chapters of, or verses of chapter 10 this evening, we must distinguish then the permanent from the temporary. And we must ask how it is then we should respond to both the lasting principles that Christ gives for the ordained ministry and the historical events and sayings that attend this unique mission that the apostles have at the very beginning of their service to Christ. In other words, we are after the marrow of the apostolic mission, the lasting priority of the king's commission. What I hope to show you this evening uh, in the time that we have together is that Christ authoritatively commissioned his apostles to preach God's gospel to God's people for God's glory. Christ authoritatively commissioned his apostles to preach God's gospel to God's people for God's glory. We'll consider this in two parts, following the structure of these first 15 verses. First, we'll take a look at the apostles themselves in verses 1 to 4. And then we will consider their assignment in verses 5 to 15. Starting first with the apostles, look at 
verses one to four with me. Really, they have two things given to them. They have an authority and an arrangement, both of which are significant for us. We'll start with the authority given to them in verse one. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and authority to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This isn't in a vacuum. In Matthew 4.23 and then again in 9.35, we have summary statements of Christ's early ministry in Galilee. And what is it that he did? He went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and casting out demons and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease uh, that was found among the people. And so now we see Christ the king taking uh, his authority and conferring it in some measure to the apostles. Why is this significant for us? Not only is the nature of their authority royal, you might say, but it really ennobles their office. These are not errand boys. They are servants of Christ, as Peter and Paul will describe themselves, but they're not gophers. They're not fulfilling very discreet, simple tasks. They're being given an ambassadorial authority. They are now able to speak and to act on behalf of the king. And all who reject them will be as those who reject the king himself. What bearing does this have this evening on what will be transpiring in just a few minutes? Corey is going to be uh, cloaked with authority from King Jesus. Yes, it's through the means of the laying on of hands of the presbytery. But Christ himself is conferring his authority, a measure of his authority upon Corey, not to be an apostle or an evangelist. Those offices have ceased, but to be an elder in the church and specifically to function as a teaching elder in your midst. And so you must recognize him then, not as an errand boy for the church and not as someone who's ticking off items on a honeydew list like Stephanie will be giving him in days ahead as they get settled in. But you must regard him as one with authority from Jesus. And elders where he may be tempted to abuse that authority, you are to hold him accountable, amen. But where he brings the word to bear in your lives, confronting sin, instructing you in godliness, you are to heed him insofar as he's representing Christ. This is a serious and weighty thing. You're not hiring a man. Christ is calling him to serve in a unique capacity in your midst, an ambassadorial capacity. Indeed, one that bears resemblance to what he's doing here with the disciples for this mission to which they're called today. The second thing that we need to look at then as we hasten through the text in verses two through four is this arrangement of the apostles. We are given uh, four arrangements, four lists of the 12 in uh, the Gospels and Acts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then again in in Acts chapter one, and Matthew does a few things that are a bit unique, or at least one thing that's partic- or two things that are particularly unique, and then one that's common to all. These three features are worth pointing out to you. Notice in the first place that Matthew doesn't just give you a list of 12 seriatim. He doesn't just give you a big block and hit you over the head with it. He breaks it up for you in a very particular and intentional way. He gives you six pairs. What is the significance of this? We might wonder. The other lists don't necessarily do this, at least not as clearly. Well, I would argue that in this pairing up of the apostles two by two, 
Matthew is emphasizing not only their uh, role in redemptive history as representing a renewed Israel, a new 12 tribes, so we might say, but he's also emphasizing for us in very practical terms the, the necessity for partnership in ministry. We go about the gospel ministry in pluralities. Corey is not being sent here in, uh, to Salem Presbyterian Church as a bishop or as a solo elder. He's coming in to work with the session that has been here and will continue to be here by God's grace. He's coming alongside of you just as you men are to come alongside of him. And this is a wonderful aspect of Presbyterian polity, what we call the parity and plurality of the eldership. That is, we're not in this on our own. We're working together. Yeah, there's difficulties involved. But man, we can accomplish so much more, can't we? You see, where we are united in purpose under Christ, our head, uh, as, as two and three and four rather than just one, there's so much more that we can accomplish. And where we are united in purpose towards some other end, there's so much more damage that we can do as well, isn't there? See, Bonnie and Clyde would not have been able to wreak as much havoc as Bonnie or Clyde. It was together that they were able to do a lot of damage. But David and Jonathan, what they were able to accomplish together in service to God and in covenant with one another was glorious. Aaron and Moses, uh, Paul and, and, uh, and Luke and, and all the teams of the missionaries in the early church. And we can multiply examples from church history as well, can't we? Uh, show me the strong man, the great ubermensch of the church. And I'll show you that you're neglecting to see the team that was with him. Indeed, even in, uh, even in other areas of the church where, where a plurality is not baked into the arrangement, where there's not an eldership or a presbytery at play, I would contend that the great men still were surrounded by those who were supporting them and laboring with them. Luther had his Melanchthon. And Calvin certainly had not only his Pharrell and, and Beza, but many scores of men laboring with him. There's no such thing as a Marlboro man, Christian or minister. The second thing that's worth pointing out is a common feature with all these lists, and that is Peter appears first, Judas appears last. In the Roman Catholic Church, our friends who recognize the Pope as head of the church Uh, levy this as an argument in favor of um, not just apostolic succession, but the primacy of Peter as the first pope. But that's not the point Matthew, Mark, Luke, or uh, Luke again in Acts make. Rather, what they're showing us is that Peter was something of the spokesman, the primus inter pares, the moderator, if you will. He would preside over the deliberations and he would represent the apostles to Jesus and Jesus would address the apostles through him for didactic purposes. Peter did not have greater nobility or greater power or influence than the other apostles in this list. No, but he certainly was uh, occupying a special office, if you will, a special function as the spokesman, which leads us then to um, the second part of this uh, listing. Peter's first, yes, but Judas is always last in these lists, which draws up for us something of a contrast between the two men. You see, Peter was moderator, Judas was the treasurer. They both were uh, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. They both received Christ's teaching and followed him in all of his earthly ministry. And 
They both denied Jesus. They both betrayed him in his death. What's the difference between the two? See, Matthew and Mark and Luke will all erect a foil. They'll they'll highlight a foil between Peter and Judas. It's a literary term, meaning a contrast. Two very similar characters with a a pointed, uh, distinct difference between the two that makes all the difference in the world. Judas would go to his death in his sins without repentance, but filled with sinful remorse, worldly remorse for what he had done to his friend. Whereas Peter, he would repent and be restored, showcasing the amazing grace of Christ in his life. Indeed, this is what's required of each and every one of us. When we are found to have denied or to betrayed or to have wronged our Savior or perhaps even one of his ministers. You have two roads uh, before you, if you will. You can go the path of Judas and continue in your sins and fall upon your own sword, if you will, and despondency and despair. Or you can go the path of Peter and repent from your sins, turning unto Christ, seeking for his pardon, which is full and free bought and purchased for you by the shed blood of our Savior on the cross. Which way, O man, shall it be? Indeed, we are to follow after that noble foil, Peter himself, as an example given to us, an approved example of that which is required of all those who hear the gospel and the offer to come to to God the, the Father through Christ the Son by the Spirit, and that is repent and believe, which is the content of the apostolic message. Finally, perhaps the most important thing about Matthew's listing is that which is most unique. Look at verse three with me. We have Philip and Bartholomew, and then we get this next pairing, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. I think in both Mark and Luke's uh, listing and, and also in Acts, Matthew is placed first, and it's not mentioned that he's a tax collector. But here, Matthew, who's drafting this, is the author of the first gospel as one who is world-renowned, one of the most famous names in all of human history. Think about that. He puts Thomas, doubting Thomas, puts him first. Isn't that amazing? You know, Corey's coming here as minister of the gospel, but that doesn't mean that he should be putting himself first. Indeed, as a young minister, he'll be very wise to put his elders first, recognizing they've been here a lot longer than he has. And likewise, you elders, as you welcome Corey into your midst as a partner in the gospel ministry, you should be looking out for his interests and making sure his family is provided for. And what is this principle that's so subtly revealed to us in how Matthew positions himself in this list? The principle is one of putting others first, of being humble. And look, he's doubly humble by God's grace. He says, Matthew, the tax collector, he doesn't call himself the apostle doesn't call himself the disciple of Jesus. He doesn't call himself the evangelist or author of the gospel. He calls himself the tax collector. This dear brother of ours did not forget from where he came. He remembered what it was that Christ saved him out of, calling him from the muck and the mire in this despised position and putting him in an office of nobility, being conferred with divine uh, authority even from Christ the Son. And yet he remembered he was the tax collector. His name won't appear again in the gospel. 
All right, we've considered the apostles in verses one to four and and some of the practical applications of of what it is that they've been granted authority, a measure of Christ's authority as ambassadors and apostles, and and how the arrangement of names here even speaks particular truths to us that are relevant to the ministry at Salem and beyond. And now we can consider their assignment. There are really three things I want to show you from verses 5 to 15 as we consider how Christ commissioned these men to preach God's gospel to God's people for God's glory. The three things are the external elements, which are largely unique to this first mission of theirs. And the second thing is the apostolic mandate, which is a permanent affixture to all Christian ministry through all time. And then thirdly, the unique manner in which they were to prosecute this mission. Again, something that was largely unique to their ministry in Galilee. In the first place, these external elements in five and six are described for us this way. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them as follows. Don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where were they to go? By negation, they were intentionally not yet to go to the nations or to the Samaritans. That is that that mixed group that were partially Jewish, culturally speaking, and then uh, partially Gentile due to the Assyrian reshuffling of nations many, many centuries ago. And why is it that Christ would say, don't go to them? We know that later, and particularly Acts chapter 8 and following, that the mission to the Samaritans and, and even beyond would be vigorous and powerful and bear much fruit. So why would Christ uh, throttle back his apostles now? What was going on? Well, there's something of deep redemptive historical significance here. Something in the working out of salvation in history needed to happen first. Look at verse 6 where Christ says, Rather... Go, that is, go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see, Christ came to save his people from their sins. Christ came, Matthew 2, 6 tells us, out of Bethlehem, the city of David, as a shepherd for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even as we read in Jeremiah chapter 50, as we read in Ezekiel 34, as as we have background from in Psalm 23, and we can multiply passages, can't we? Even Psalm 100, which was our call to worship this evening, uh, speaks of us being the flock of God, the sheep of his pasture. Christ came for his sheep. And at this point in time, that uh, first referred to the people of Israel that they might receive the gospel, that they might hear it, the gospel of the kingdom promised by their prophets, even anticipated by the law, we might say. This temporary restriction that Christ places on the apostles in their mission uh, was necessary for Christ to save his people, eventually people of every nation, but beginning with the old covenant church, the ancient Jews from their sins. Is there a lasting principle we can derive from this? Well, first, we can exalt in the faithfulness of our Savior, can't we? He does not abandon that which he covenants to do. And he covenanted with the people of Israel. And he was faithful to them in their time. He pled with them. He wept over them. And he pursued them, even though they scorned and rejected him, even to death on a cross. But we can exalt in the faithfulness of God, a faithfulness which endures not only to the Jews of yesteryear, but to you and to me today and to our covenant children. Do any of you have wayward children, lost sheep scattered on the hills of this present evil age? 
Do you ever plead with God on his faithfulness? How he marked that child by baptism to be his? Do you plead and weep for your children, your brothers, your sisters, perhaps even parents um, who are wandering from the fold of God? Oh, you can plead the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness displayed even here in his focusing his apostles and sending these ministers after a particular people at a particular time. Oh, Lord, send forth faithful men and women to share the gospel to my brother, to my sister, to my son, my daughter, my loved ones who are yours by right and yet have scorned you and turned aside. But also, Corey, this, even though it's deep in, in redemptive history and your hardest Voss may have all kinds of comments to make on it and you'll love to read, this should be a reminder to you that your focus is on the flock in front of you. You'll have opportunities in our present connected age where people from all over the world might say, hey, I need your help with this, that, or the other. And sometimes you should help. And you'll have to use wisdom and discretion to determine when those times are. But your first priority and your primary focus in terms of ministry activity is to these dear folks right here to whom the Lord has called you. The second thing in this passage dealing with their assignment is the apostolic mandate in verses 7 and 8. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely received. Freely give. In these words, Christ is giving a specific application of the authority which he's conferred upon the apostles to extend his ministry of preaching and healing and casting out demons and even uh, expanding the ministry by raising the dead, which we will see the apostles do in Acts. We don't see them do it here uh, in this passage or in this tour, at least it's not reported to us, but we do see them doing all of these miracles in the book of Acts. The primary focus here, like I said, the hub at the center of the wheel is this preaching, this proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. That is perhaps the most enduring feature of all of this is that today gospel ministers are to have this as their priority, as I've already said, and to belabor the point. But how do the miracles fit into this? How do these deeds of Christ, which now the apostles are supposed to do, how does that have any lasting significance for us today? Well, there's two, uh, there's two different views of this, broadly speaking, aren't there? There's the continuationist view, which our Pentecostal friends hold to, and that is that um, the gifts of the Spirit, they endure to the present age, even beyond the closure of the canon. And then there's our position, which is a cessationist view, which says that uh, the, with the closure of the canon, these miraculous gifts, these gifts of, of miraculous works, we might say, uh, have ceased. And today... Does that mean they don't matter? No. It means that the record of them is sufficient for us. The record of God's miraculous dealings through his people, with his people, confirming his message is wholly sufficient for us. I don't need to see some man uh, calling himself an apostle, raise someone from the dead, or restore someone's withered arm to know that God has done such to confirm his word in the past. I can rest on the testimony of the scriptures. Indeed, this is the, uh, the principle of, of knowing God is the word which he's given to us. Isn't this sufficient for us? Why do we clamor and holler and, and, and beg for something beyond what God has given so graciously and freely to us? 
Indeed, the apostles have done all these things. We have the record. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? It ought to be. And by God's grace, as the spirit applies it to our hearts, it shall be. In the preaching of the word is God's revelation of himself to his people and to all the world. And the revelation of his works. His ministry goes forth yesterday, today, and forever. But where this message and the miracles contained therein, the record of them, where they are rejected, denied, explained away, or deemed insufficient, the ministry dies. The ministry dies. Thirdly, the unique manner of this mission in verses 9 to 15. Notice Jesus gives them some interesting commands, some interesting directives. He says, don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts. But then he says, the worker is worthy of his support. He says, don't take a bag for your journey or even two coats, or I would say extra sandals or extra staff. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, stay at his house until you leave that city and so on. What's going on here? What Christ is describing for them is really uh, what we might call a flash operation. They're to dash in, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, stay as long as they need to, but not any longer, and then move on to the next place. They're not supposed to make this a long, drawn-out affair. They're not supposed to put down roots. This is an itinerant ministry that they're to be about. There's a quickness to it, a swiftness to it, as they go through all the villages and towns of Israel. But it's not rushed, just not lingering. That's the point. This is very temporary. It's even an explosive assignment as the kingdom is pronounced. That's why they have sparse equipment with them. That's why the plan is for brief stays with one host per city or village. You know, how long does it take to wear out a welcome when you're staying with family? Three days. Three days. Remember that principle? Three days. Don't ever stay longer than three days. Been married for 13 years. I have in-laws. Never stay longer than three days. You leave them wanting you to stay. And you're like, no, I really got to go. Oh, we love you. See you next time. Four days. You don't get that. You say, bye-bye. Take care. Quick. In and out. That's the characterization of this particular tour of service. Hopefully, Corey stays longer than three days here. He's going to lay down some roots, hopefully for many fruitful and productive years. And so this is a temporary feature of the apostolic mission. Again, not to pick on our Roman Catholic friends, but in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, these principles, these directions were taken as permanent rules for certain monastic orders and and different things. And that was foolish and it, it didn't do anything to help with the spread of the gospel. But for this mission, this is a short term mission trip, we might say. The second feature of it is that this was free. They're teaching without compelling a charge, but yet the worker is worthy of his support, they could receive freely offered support and hospitality. This was unique to their cultural environment, we might say. You see, it wasn't all that uncommon for rabbis to undergo spontaneous itineracy and to receive support in exchange for their expertise and their teaching. Also, I would argue the more permanent principle here for the apostles is as Christ is developing them for service after his departure, what is he doing? He's helping them learn in increments how to be sheep of Christ even before they're called to be shepherds of Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean they're learning what it is to depend on Jesus day by day for their every need. For as apostles, they do have a unique calling that only uh, 
12 or arguably we could say 13 men when we include Paul, 14 if you want to keep Judas in the list after Matthias is added. But these men and these men alone would have this particular office. They would face poverty. They would face uh, deprivation, desperate conditions, imprisonment, persecution, as Christ has been emphasizing again and again in Matthew's gospel. And he's preparing them even now to live in full dependence on him. And whatever our office, elder, deacon, minister, whatever we do, even as in the general office of believer. Aren't we to depend on the Lord Jesus day by day, trusting the God who takes care of the sparrows and the ravens and the lilies of the field? Hasn't that been Christ's teaching? Well, now he's calling these men to live it out. He's defined what dependence is. Now he's developing them and testing them in it as he's deploying them in service. Finally, at the end of our passage today in verses 14 and 15, we see a promise of blessing paired with a warning or threat. This is very typical of Old Testament prophetic uh, messages and Christ indeed is the prophet of prophets revealing to us the will of God for our salvation, attending it our promises and threats. He says, if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. Give it your benediction. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace or withhold that benediction. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. I think probably signifying separation more than contempt, but we're not going to die on that hill. Truly, I say to you, and this is the point of the threat here or the warning, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That is that rejects your blessing that rejects the word, rejects this gospel of the kingdom that expects and demands something more from you than what it is I'm giving you to say. The proclamation of the gospel message does bring with it a responsibility to the hearers, a responsibility to receive it, a responsibility to believe it, to enter into union and communion with Christ uh, through faith in it, we might say, and in him. For there's coming a verdict day, the day of judgment, and the stakes are deadly high, as Christ says in our passage. Will you receive the good news of your souls and your eternal salvation, or will you reject it, refuse the grace, scorn God to his face, and invite upon yourself the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, quite literally fire and brimstone? There are many reasons to come to an ordination service. I don't pretend to know why each of you are here this evening. Some of you perhaps are supporting the Lanier's as family members or friends. Um, perhaps you've traveled long distances to do it. Others of you might be here in the community and not a part of Salem Presbyterian Church, but you're interested in what, what is going on here. This is a historic moment and hopefully one that will bear much fruit for years to come. And as a gospel minister, I am responsible to set before you the call to believe the gospel. That is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that God saves sinners through Christ alone. And by his stripes, we are healed. That is by his shed blood on the cross. We receive pardon for our sins and enjoy reconciliation to God through faith in him. And what shall it be? Will you accept and hold fast to this gospel, which Corey will be tasked to preach here from this pulpit for years to come? Or will you reject it and face everlasting condemnation and destruction 
even akin to that which was experienced by Sodom and Gomorrah. My friends, hold fast to the Christ that is held forth before you in his gospel. And don't let go. And give heed to any preacher who presents to you Christ, however imperfectly. Now, in conclusion, the temptation in pastoral ministry, whether you're in a rich church or a church of modest means, a rural church or an urban church or somewhere in between, in a church plant or a well-grounded and stable congregation, is to allow certain important things, particularly property management, things that must be done and taken care of, things we frequently call priorities, to crowd out that one great priority Christ lays on his ministers, that is, to preach and proclaim and declare the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Don't neglect those important things, but don't allow them to supplant or push aside the singular priority of your ministerial labors. Preach the word. Preach the whole counsel of God. Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in preaching. All of your service must be geared toward preaching the gospel. For no other institution or society of men will do that. That is the church's mandate. It is the preacher's whole life purpose, we might say. And so, officers of this church, let your minister preach. Free him up to preach. Free him up to be in prayer, to be in study of the word, to be with his dear family, to be in the homes and the hospital rooms of this community that he might then be as effective as he can be as a studied and sensitive preacher in relationship to the people to whom he's preaching. You really can't preach to people you don't know. And brothers in the presbytery and on the session, I plead with you. I'll be doing this from an hour away since Corey's my friend, but he's really more closely your co-laborer in your presbytery and in your church. Pray that Corey would preach with fresh anointing from heaven week by week, with spiritual unction, born of the Holy Spirit who works through a close and intimate communion with God in prayer and in holiness of life. Pray with confidence that God will heed the request, even as Christ answers the prayer which he laid before the disciples themselves to send forth workers into the harvest, so too he will heed your prayers for Corey, that he be made more holy, that he might bear forth greater fruits of righteousness and fruit of the Spirit in his life for the good of God's people and the glory of God's name. And pray this way, for it aligns perfectly with Christ's royal commission here in this ordination sermon in Matthew chapter 10, this commission which he gives to all his servants in every age to preach the word. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.